All right. Well, good morning. Um, our morning's uh, a slightly delayed, but we're thankful uh, for new members, and uh, we're thankful particularly for, um, uh, as we even, even as we prayed for them, for God's work in their lives to, to bring them to a point, not just of joining this church. We're just glad that they're Christians and that the Lord has been kind to offer salvation to every sinner that is among us. That, that is really the nature of the gospel, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, uh, but if you turn to Romans chapter 12, we finish off chapter 12 today um, in verses 17 to 21. So as you turn there, let me just give you a, a little bit of an of a introduction to what you're looking at. We began, right, we've been studying through the book of Romans, and once we turn to chapter 12, we said that there's a clear distinction, there's a clear shift from the, the theology, the doctrine of the gospel of God in the first 11 chapters to now, chapter 12, some of the very practical implications of what the gospel means for our lives. This, this is how the gospel plays out. This is how the gospel is applied. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 talked about the gospel impact on all of our life, that we are now to be a living sacrifice to live in such a way that every act, every breath, every decision, everything that we do in this life becomes then an act of worship and devotion to the God that has rescued us from our sin. So from there, we have looked at things that, that are the practical nature of the gospel applied to our lives. Uh, we looked at service, how the gospel influences or impacts our service and our gifts and the use of our gifts for the greater good in the body of Christ. That was verses 3 to 8. We looked at the gospel and at how it applies to our Christian character as far as Christian love is concerned. And we saw how genuine God-defined love fueled by the gospel is sincere and without hypocrisy in verse 9. We talked about brotherly affection for one another in verses 10 through 13. We talked about the kind of Christian love, a gospel-inspired and transformed love that is forgiving and loving those that are our enemies, how it's empathetic that, that we care about those that are fellow image bearers because we share a common humanity and we are all precious in the sight of God. How that kind of Christian love, that gospel-inspired love, is also unifying, verse 16, and how um, that kind of love, God's love for us, drives us to seek unity with one another. And so today, we continue with the gospel and its application, or really a response, a gospel response, to evil. To evil. And that's in verses 17 through 21. Let me read that to you. And then we'll pray and we'll jump into our text this morning. This is Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your text this morning, um, Lord, we are reminded of the application of your love 
for us. And Lord, even as we think about your love for us and our, um, how we try to mimic that love towards one another, we lift up those that rejoice. We thank you for those that um, rejoice in, in relocations and have moved on from us and have joined other bodies of Christ. And we lift them up and we thank you for them. We thank you for those that rejoice um, for getting married or for having kids or knowing that their child will be born soon. We rejoice with those that rejoice, and we mourn with those that mourn, those that have lost loved ones. We think of Carol Kim in particular, um, whose mom passed yesterday, and we ask for comfort and care for her and her father, and that our church, Lord, would be an excellent source of comfort and encouragement and a source of love towards her. And Father, in all of that, we are reminded again that as human beings still broken in, in, in sin and struggling with a sinful and often evil world, help us to think carefully about what the gospel means for our lives and how to live even in the face of evil. And um, we ask that you would give us strength. Strength not to be more courageous and stronger and to demonstrate our strength is greater than theirs, but but that you would give us the kind of strength that is, um, that is dependent upon a God of grace and mercy. And that every, every illustration of your love for us in Christ might fuel our love for all people, especially those of the household of faith. But Lord, as we consider this morning that the topic of evil and, and, and the potential of evil coming against us, Help us to live in a manner that honors our Savior and that exalts the gospel of grace and that demonstrates that we are redeemed and transformed and so different from the world because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. We pray for these things and ask that, uh, that the message of salvation would ring true to our hearts and would be active and real in the way that we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you've turned there, but in uh, Romans chapter 12, we'll be looking starting at verse 17. But let me say this, uh, just as a warning from the beginning. Whenever you run across a portion of Scripture that seems to come at you with a number or a list of commands, of things that, that are to be adapted to our character, things that we are supposed to do, we always have to warn ourselves. We need to be reminded of the danger of moralism, of moralism. Do you guys know what I mean? Uh, morals are simply good virtues. That, that in itself is not wickedness. But the problem is that morals, human morals or moralism, is trying to seek a human standard of what is right or good. The thing to underline there is the human standard. In a given culture, morality or moralism would look like this. In another culture, it would look like this. It could shift because, again, it is human standards and we want to be careful that we do not re reduce the Christian life to a series of standards of do's and don'ts that are very human in nature and its application. See, the danger of moralism is that it divorces goodness and righteousness from God and His gospel. It's a, it's a genuine and real danger. 2 Timothy 3 speaks about how in the, in the last days there will be difficult times and explains those difficult times this way. 
People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. We have to pause there, right? Because uh, there's, there's, there's teenagers in the room. Um, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is an intense list of how difficult things will get in these last days. But here's verse 5 of 2 Timothy 3. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That last one is intriguing because it is saying that with all of those things that are thrown out there, unholy, heartless, slanderous, brutal, you have thrown in there that there is an element, a a moralism or even a religiousness that could fall upon us so that we have the appearance of godliness, but with the clear denial of any gospel or Holy Spirit-inspired transformation we deny its power so we always need to be careful that we're not just doing or looking good so they've actually been transformed by the gospel see how do we pursue godly character without being trapped in this almost self-made religion or human morality and i think there's there's two things to think about this isn't the message this is just the intro right these two things just for you to think about and one is, the question is, how good, how good is God? How good is God? Now, that, 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 that doesn't, sometimes we say how good is God, and what we mean by that is how good is He to me? In other words, what are the blessings and how kind is He to me? But I mean, how good is God? How righteous is He? How holy is He? How much does goodness, right, the idea of goodness, how much is that embodied solely in the character of God, how fantastic and wondrous and awesome and so categorically different is he than us, then secondly, to meditate on how great then is our redemption. Because the greater God is, the more clearly we undeserve or we do not deserve his goodness to us. So how great is the redemption of the gospel towards me, who was his enemy, and a hater of everything that he commanded or demanded or desired for my good. How good and gracious and righteous and holy is my God, and how much did it take for him to save me? It took so much that the perfect Son of God had to die the death that I should have died eternally. See, when you take those two questions into account, all I'm asking you to do is consider the depth of the gospel. And when you consider the depth of the gospel, then you have the capacity to think about, okay, how do I face evil? How do I resist vengeance? And how do we overcome evil with good? Did I do that? Did you do that? (laughs) I'm hoping I did it, okay? But see, look look at how well that fit into our outline. Right? Facing evil, resisting vengeance, and overcoming evil with good. Let's dive in. Now, I'm pretty sure you guys did it because this is next slide. I'm sorry. That, that's the worst thing, huh, when you're trying to listen to a sermon and we have to say next slide. But the first point in verses 17 through, through 18, right? Facing evil. Oh, don't repay, don't repay with evil. 
Now, let, let me just say the first point would be to just kind of understand what we mean by this, right? Uh, verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The term for evil here is exactly the same as our English term for evil. It means something that is reprehensibly bad or morally bad. But at least the way that the New Testament uses this particular word for evil, it is often used in connection to harm. It means morally bad, but particularly morally bad as it is used harmfully, as something is done harmfully unto others. So we want to, before we even jump into all of this, we, we want to make sure that we talk about um, the reality of evil and the call of Christians to not repay evil for evil. We need to make sure that we are careful here. Because if harm is concerned, if evil is concerned, we are, we are to be clear, right? Because we, we need to nuance what we're going to talk about in verses 17 to 21 with the understanding that, that this passage does not call for simple and absolute Christian pacifism. It's not to say that anything bad that happens to us, we don't do anything, we just take it, because that's what we do. That's what Christians do, right? This passage is not intended to allow evil to flourish and to leave us to suffering evil and to leave others that we are supposed to protect, um, to leave them to suffering evil, etc. If evil is being experienced, and some of you guys might be experiencing some, some kind of evil now, whether it's by way of abuse or by way of some people coming against you, doing something that is wrong, that is morally reprehensible, and if that is done by someone that is a professing Christian, then you enter into the steps of church discipline outlined in Matthew 18. But if it's done by, by anyone else, and it's in an illegal form, in other words, even our society rec uh, recognizes that that act or those things being done to you is, is wrong and criminal, then Christians have an obligation to report and seek justice and righteousness from governing authorities. I want to say that off the bat because I don't want you to, to come away with our passage thinking that Scripture is calling us to just, just act like, well, you know, we're Christians, so whatever evil and wickedness happens to us, we just let it go. It's not Christian pacifism. But it is saying that individually, that the way that we face evil is transformed by the gospel. Repay no one evil for evil. Don't repay with evil. The, t the, the verb here is actually to repay, to give back, to recompense. And so the idea is, what do you pay for something that has already been done to you? Right? In the Old Testament law terms, the idea is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So wouldn't that mean then, logically, then repay evil for evil? That guy punches me in the face, I punch him in the face. Right? I mean, it seems like you know, fair is fair. He breaks my tooth, I break his tooth, right? He pokes me in the eye, boink, you know, I poke him in the eye, right? Doesn't it seem like it's just reciprocity. I wrote that down because I thought that was a good word, right? But uh, I totally chunked that. I apologize, right? But let's understand something. In Exodus 21, 24, when Scripture does say, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it's one talking about civil justice. In other words, this is how a society should conduct itself, not individual revenge. That's one. But two, it's talking about making justice proportional to the crime. 
You know what it protects us from? It protects us from saying, hey, you stole that apple. I'm going to kill your family. And you think, man, that, that's outrageous. That kind of stuff would happen. In fact, you think about even the, the laws of Hammurabi, which are like this, this codex of laws written a long time ago. They had a different punishment if you were royalty or aristocracy versus if you were a commoner. You stole and you're a commoner, we cut off your hands. You stole and you're a rich person, then you just, you just replace that and you pay a penalty. See, the lex telionis, the, the idea of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in the scriptures is meant to say you only demand of a person something that is appropriate, proportional to their offense, regardless of their class. So it's, it's meant to flatten out the application of the law. It is not to say that if they do something wicked, you do something wicked to them. But I want to say a couple things about this phrase, don't repay evil Right? Repay no one evil for evil. It implies a couple of things. One, that evil might actually be paid out to you as a Christian. That it shouldn't surprise us that there are some among us that are suffering evil or that have suffered some form of evil. That, that's the experience of us living in a fallen world, even as believers. Right? That's one. That's the first assumption. The second is that we would be tempted to repay evil with like evil. In other words, like I said, if they abuse me, I feel like I should abuse them back. If they have hurt me, I feel like I should hurt them back. The temptation, even for believers, will be strong to strike back if we have been struck. Maybe to put it in a more comical way, right? If you guys are familiar with the comic strip, Hagar the Horrible, this is his advice to his son. Son, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Sounds familiar. Attack your enemy at once and waste him while what he did to you is still fresh in your mind. It's excellent worldly advice, but the exact opposite of what Scripture calls us to. Don't repay evil for evil. It's a more difficult and challenging command that we might recognize when we haven't faced that evil but see it assumes that our natural instinct would be to pay in full or even beyond for whatever evil is done against us I, i'll confess that i see it in my own heart not because i've seen some great evil done to me and i responded with gospel graciousness but because anytime i see a movie and there's some evil done i'm like dude i hope that guy gets killed at the end in the most horrific way right because that would be justice, because he's evil, and I just, want, I just want him to suffer as if I am any different in terms of my own sinfulness and despicability in the eyes of an all-holy God. It, it's our natural self-righteousness. I want to repay evil for evil. But the gospel informs us, and we'll talk more about the gospel and how it informs us, to not repay evil with evil. Well, the next point. Oh, it's working. Okay. Next point is prepare to do good, to live honorably. Look at the second part of verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. See, the word for honorable there is kalos, and it's, it's the most generic, you know, New Testament term for goodness, intrinsic goodness. It, it, it means good in the sense of something that is that is beautiful, 
right? If you're talking about just an object. But if you're talking about actions or characters or human beings, you usually mean it in the sense of good as a noble or of righteousness. So maybe the better word um, for us to consider is the word right or good instead of honorable. It's not so much that we are to give honor, but the idea here is that we're to give thought to do what is good in the sight of all. Now, now notice that, that verb, give thought to. It means to premeditate it, to give consideration to it, to plan ahead. It's not just do it. It's think carefully how to respond to evil in such a way that instead of returning or paying back the evil done to you, instead, think of good and how to adapt this circumstance for good for noble purposes in such a way that it is good enough that in the sight of all, they would recognize there's something good and excellent about that. Let me give you a couple other trans, uh, you know, um, modern translations of it to kind of give us a more full reading. But the NASB says of the same verse, translated this way, um, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. See, the point is that the redeemed of God, because they recognize their own wickedness, our own sinfulness, we have confessed that, and we have sought to repent from our sins and placed our faith in Christ alone for salvation, then by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have both the capacity and the obligation to shape our thinking to do what is good and noble. Listen, Christian, I know sometimes we struggle to even to do what is right. We struggle with our temptation to just live in sin and disobedience to the Scriptures. I know that. But how much more difficult when evil is, is done against us to not retaliate with evil, but to walk in gospel grace and strength. It's not any different from the message of Jesus in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Let me read that to you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, let me say this. Jesus is not quoting the scriptures exclusively. That first part, you shall love your neighbor, is from Deuteronomy. It's, he's quoting the scriptures. And hate your enemy is found nowhere in the Old Testament. Right? That hate your enemy part, it, Jesus is saying, you have heard the teachers of Judaism take the passage of Scripture that says, you'll love your neighbor, and they've said that, but they've added to that their own eye for an eye, evil for evil, and you'll hate your enemy. Jesus goes on, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here's his reasoning, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So see, Jesus is closely connecting that those who can love enemies and pray for those that persecute them, they have the characteristics of their heavenly Father. That's why he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. God is good even to wicked men. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The point is this. Our response to evil 
validates or invalidates the truth claims of the gospel. It validates or invalidates our truth claims for the gospel. If I am telling someone, listen, I am a sinner and I deserved eternal hell, but Jesus Christ died and paid that penalty for me on the cross. And so I am free and I'm forgiven and I have new life in him. And the guy spills coffee on me going, what, what are you doing? I spilled coffee back on him, right? This it literally invalidates the, the truth claims of the gospel in my life. But, but some of you, right, as you think about it, you might be thinking, okay, but if that's the case, then doesn't wickedness win? I, I always think about this. Like, if there is no God, if there's no final justice, if there is no ultimate goodness, then if you're really wicked, then don't you kind of win? Like, you could be really wicked, do wicked things in this life, and then if you just kind of evaporate into nothingness, then it's just a choice, right? I could live really wickedly, hurt people, kill people, get whatever I want, steal it, murder for it, and then in the end, if they catch me and I die, then I just, woo, I just kind of disappear, Right? I get snapped out of existence, turn into dust. Or if there is something that is to, to, to judge me, if there's a goodness and a righteousness that goes outside of me, then I answer for every single crime. See, the comfort that we have when evil is committed against us, because in the end, right, if, if there is no God, if life is only under the sun, then the potential of evil to win is much higher because the goodness of those that want to apply the gospel in the face of evil, right? They're going to return grace. If we are going to feed our enemies, offer drink to our enemies who are thirsty, if, we, if that's the way we're going to respond to evil, then the evil guy is probably thinking, man, this is the best gig ever. I just do evil, and these guys return goodness to me. I can just keep on doing evil. I'm a win. What's our comfort against that? Comfort against that is there's a God. And that God knows everything. And what we mean by that is he knows everything, which means that he judges perfectly every evil act. No one gets away with anything, and every person will bear a full account for every evil act. Why can a Christian be kind to those that act evilly against him? Because we know that God's wrath abides over that action and every action that goes contrary to what he demands of righteousness. We know there is a God, and he knows all things, and that nothing escapes his notice. Every sin and evil thought will be paid for in full by that human being and that human soul or by Jesus Christ because we have placed our faith in Him and He has paid for it on the cross. God knows. And that is our comfort even when bad things happen to Christians. He knows and He cares for every victim. God knows if you've been injured, if you've been taken advantage of or harmed or abused. And God offers you grace. God offers you love and comfort. And it doesn't mean that he makes those things magically disappear, but he promises an eternity in the future where all of this will become a faded memory. Where the best things in this life are a mere shadow to the experience of the life to come. 
where the worst things in this life will only last at the most until the end of this life. And then eternity, and eternity um, in life and love with the Heavenly Father. So when facing evil, how does the gospel apply to our reaction? We don't repay evil with evil, right? And we prepare to do good. And then third, we live peaceably. Look at verse 18. Live peaceably as possible. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, leave, live peaceably with all. The, the term for peace is one that I think we encounter often in the scriptures, and we've talked about it a lot. It's not just the absence of hostilities, right? We think of peace as equivalent to truce. That's how we use it in our English, right? Like, hey, hey, peace, peace, man. We mean like, hey, let's stop fighting. Let's not get angry, right? Let's not build hostility. Let's just stop being hostile. But when Scripture talks about peace, it goes much deeper than that. It doesn't just mean a ceasing of hostilities. It, it comes from the Hebrew concept of shalom. It means there's a wholeness, a fullness, a recovery of something. When we say wholeness, we might think, okay, well, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Well, think of it this way. Think in terms of a broken bone. If you have a fracture, it needs to be, right, it needs to be whole again. It needs to be put back into one piece. It needs to be healthy again, sound again. That's the idea of peace. So the verbal form of this word for peace is here. Not just prepare to do what is good, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Do peace. Make peace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's characteristic of those that follow their Heavenly Father. James 3, 17, we read part of that in our opening scripture reading, right? That the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The, the idea is that the Christian, because of the gospel and its influence on them, they live for peace. It, to the degree to, it says very clearly, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that means with all men, with all human beings. But the if possible is the realism of our human experience in this life. If possible, if it's within your power, is literally the phrase, because the point is sometimes it's not possible for us to live peaceably, wholly, reconciled with all people. Be why? Because reconciliation and peace between two individuals requires really that both are engaged and willing to come to peace, to establish wholeness, to be reconciled one to another. So here, I think the scriptures are making it very clear and realistic that as far as it's possible, it's on you, Christian, to leave a channel open for the possibility of peace, to leave space for there to be reconciliation. Sometimes it won't happen because the other party is not interested in, in, in entering that space. But as far as it depends on you, you leave that space open. It means two things for the Christian. One, it means that the Christian is responsible to initiate peace. We are the initiators of peace. And if, uh, if you have difficulties with individuals and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how much 
God has paid in the, in the price of the life and death of his own son to rescue and to adopt you, then you understand our responsibility and in light of the gospel that we are to be the initiators of making peace with others. Listen, I, I know how hard this, the command is, right? Because I'm just thinking about it, even, I'm not even talking about evil against evil. I'm not talking about guy throwing axes at me, right? And wanting to, you know, I'm going to kill you, you know. We're not talking about just that. We're talking about like normal, even Christian relationships. We're kind of mad at each other, right? Where this, this person is upset at you for something that you don't think you did wrong. And so you're thinking like, man, forget them, you know. Forget that fellow Christian that Christ paid his death and life for, right? Forget him who God loves so much that he died uh, to bear the wrath of God, that Jesus bear the wrath of the Holy Father on our, my behalf. Forget that fool, right? I don't like him. It is a call for us in that difficulty to be the initiators of making peace. But it also says, as far as it depends on you, meaning that as Christians, we should never be the reason that reconciliation can't take place. See, you, you'll, fall, you'll find yourself at any given moment as in one of those two places, either thinking like, dude, you have caused this, this division, this, this, this conflict between us. And for me to think that that person's primarily responsible, it's on me as a Christian to say, okay, I need to try to initiate peace. That's what it means when it says, right, if possible, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to try to initiate peace. But maybe I'm the person on the other side, right? Maybe I'm the person that's saying, no, you know, like, I don't know what his problem is, talking about, you know, I'm the problem, he's the problem, right? I should never be the one. So if that Christian says, hey, listen, I think there's, you know, something between us. I just want to to make things right. I want us to be whole. I want us to be reconciled. And if I'm like, man, I don't need to be reconciled with you. Then see, there's a secondary application of us Remembering that we can never be the main or the primary reason why peace can't take place. Both sides of that is about living peaceably with all men. See, short of compromising God's truth or His standards, right? We're not, we're not seeking peace at any price. We're not seeking peace at the price of lying or to giving in to sin. But short of that, there's a clear application for every Christian. Because if there's somebody, if there are some people that you have had some difficulty with, Christian, it is your obligation as a gospel testimony to do your best to offer space to be reconciled and to make things right. That, that, that's how the Christian, right? That's how the Christian faces, faces evil, faces things that come against them. Oh, I'm going to move on here, right? Facing evil, that was our first point. Resisting vengeance. That's uh, verse 19. It says there, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. <clears throat> See, now we've entered now from the idea of facing evil to now resisting vengeance. And, and I think that the first point, as by way of command, is here, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Avenge has become a good word, right? Be- because of movies, right? The Avengers, they assemble, and then they go fight. And then, so see, the idea, I guess, of Avengers is that they avenge some wrong that is done. Did you know that? 
because I looked up, I was, I was kind of curious, like, because I almost said, never take revenge. And I thought, well, what's the difference between revenge and avenge? Except for, you know, a letter, right? Avenge means to take vengeance for something in an attempt to achieve justice. Do you hear that? In an attempt to achieve justice. That's important. Revenge means to take vengeance. Period. The connotation, the way that we use those two words differently um, today, in our vernacular today, in our English, is that revenge doesn't necessarily require us seeking justice. It's not because of this injustice done. It's just because. And that's going to be the better word here is avenge, and not just because I like that word better, which I kind of do, but also because it better fits the Greek term behind it. The term that is translated, never avenge, is a word that actually comes from the legal language of, of, of the Greek New Testament. It means to procure justice for someone. It could be used in a sense of uh, obtaining justice or inflicting the proper or appropriate penalty for some injustice that has been done. It's a legal term. It means to seek that what, what is unjust and correct it by means of applying what is right or punishment or whatever it is. So if you take it in that context, then avenge is the right word. Beloved, don't avenge yourself. See, the point is that there will be times when you are convinced that you are in the right. And you just want what is right, what is fair, what is just. And it's while you're thinking that, that the Scripture calls us and says, Beloved, I know that you feel certain that you are the one in the right and you're trying to correct something that is unjust. But don't take justice into your own hands is what this verse means. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave justice to the God of justice. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Even in the Old Testament, God says, you don't just have a grudge and you're mad at somebody and you just kind of go after them. You don't take your own vengeance. Leave it to the Lord. That's the next part, right? Never avenge yourselves. Trust God's justice. But see, look at the verse. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it to the wrath of God. Now, if you notice in your English text that of God is um, in italics, it's because that's not in the Greek text, um, but it's inserted for you in your English so that you understand we're not just talking about any wrath, we're talking about the wrath. Because it says, leave it literally to the wrath with a definite article, not just a wrath or to just general wrathfulness, but leave it to the wrath, suggesting that it must be the wrath of God. And then the, the verse that is quoted from Deuteronomy 32-35 bears that out. Vengeance is mine and recompense. God says, let me take care of the justice part. Trust me. I've seen everything. I know everything. I even know your part in it. I, I know how to weigh out exactly. You had a little bit of, of, you know, of blame in that. That other person might have had a large 
you know, amount of blame in that. Regardless, God knows it all, and all of it must be paid in full, either on the cross, because I place my faith in Christ, or in my own soul unto eternity. God demands perfect justice for everything that is inequitable, everything that is wrong. That's the promise of a holy and righteous and all-knowing just God. That's why he says, vengeance is mine. Let me repay evil for evil. Let me take care of those that have done wrong, even if they've done wrong to you. Because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You know that verse? That's uh, uh, Psalm 89, 14. It's a wonderful statement. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, meaning his rule, God's supremacy, are founded in righteousness and justice. The rest of that verse says, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God is all of those things. And it's our trust in God and His justice that gives us the capacity to say, I'm not going to take revenge. Because unless that person repents of their sins and places their faith in Christ, they're going to pay for that sin and every sin that they've committed for the rest of eternity. I don't need to take my pound of flesh. There's, there's more than enough judgment that's to come. We, we have that perfect example of trusting in God's justice and His righteousness and not demanding my own in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a verse you might want to look at later. First, First Peter 2, 21 through 23. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For to you... For, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he was perfect. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, verse 23, did you catch that? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, even though he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself right, to him who judges justly. God the Father knows, he judges perfectly, and we can trust in him. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. We don't return evil for evil. Right? We trust in God's justice so facing evil res resisting vengeance right and then finally overcome evil with good verses 20 and 21 this, this is the part i think where it becomes a little more challenging for us in terms of its application look at verse 20 to the contrary the contrary what to the contrary of returning eye for an eye evil for evil if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. If you're like me, I read verse 20, and my flesh wants to just go to the end and say, hey, by doing so, I could heap burning. That's what I want to do. I'm going to heap burning coals on that knucklehead's right, thick skull. I, that's what I want to do, right? That's not even what that, ver that, that phrase means, but let me get back to this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. When your enemy, not your friend, not your pal, not your kids, but when your enemy has a physical need, oh man, I'm starving, or he's thirsty, how are you to act? 
Because I feel like, isn't it morally neutral if I just go, oh, oh that's too bad, I gotta take off, I'll see you later, right? Like, I didn't inflict harm, I didn't, I didn't poison his meat, right? I didn't say, oh, you're thirsty? Oh, I got something for you, right? I, here you go, right? I didn't, I didn't do something that is uh, vengeful, I just avoided having to do anything nice. Is that not sufficient? And the scriptures, according to the scriptures, that's not sufficient. Not for anyone that's been transformed by the gospel of grace. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He's in a circumstance where he has need, take care of his need. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. It's like, Lord, this is crazy. You're asking me to act like this guy is my friend or my neighbor. And that's exactly what scripture is encouraging us to do and think. To see in every human being the image-bearing of God, the sinfulness that we are absolutely capable of doing ourselves. And to demonstrate a kindness that is very much like our Heavenly Father. Right? Kindness, not vengeance, in meeting the needs of those that are our enemies. Okay, so the first two is easy, right? He's hungry, you give him something to eat. It's thirsty, you give him something to, th- to drink. It's easy in terms of understanding what that means. But what's with this? So by doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. And that sounds like what I want to do, right? Like I just want to like throw coals on top of that guy's head, right? There's a couple possibilities. Right? The idea of coals means that it is to heat up something. And uh, coals are used in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, for example, to, to cleanse Right? It's like the, the fire of refinement and of cleansing. It could be used that way. It could also be used for judgment, that you could stoke coals to get heat, to, to burn something up in, in fiery judgment. Um, there, is, uh, some, um, um, yeah, there, there are some commentators who think that it might even mean that, you know, that, you will, you, that people need coal, and so ho- heaping coal on top of like you know the the sensor the thing that they bring to carry the coal when they are in need of heat and coal is kind of something you do for your neighbor because they are in need i mean all of that i think you know there's some possibility in that i think the third one is just too complicated i don't think people reading this right as a gentile convert in rome or a jewish convert in rome says oh yeah yeah that's exactly what that means right it's like it's like when people come to you and they have their little pot and they need coals no, man, <laughs> that's too complicated. That's crazy, right? Like, it, Paul's writing it as if people kind of know what this means. And I think what it means is that there is this sense that, that by doing kindness to those that deserve something else, that deserve justice, it increases either their judgment, right? Or it increases their guilt. They're, they're very similar. They're shade apart, but this is what I mean by that. By doing what is kind to them, it could be that it, it, it impugns them further if they continue in their unkindness towards you. That would be the judgment part of it. But I think more likely, I, I think it leans more towards, based on the context of, you know, of overcoming evil with good and loving your enemies, all that that was stated within this context of Romans 12, I think more likely the idea is that you increase his shame. That even unbelievers will look at that and go, dude, why are you so mean to that guy? Because he's a Christian. I hate that fool, Right? It's like, okay, but, man, that guy's nice to you. You're, you're the worst turkey of a jerk I've ever known, right? That's, that's terrible, you know? Even unbelievers will recognize that person's shame. And if it's built that way, if that's what Paul's getting at, 
then, then I think the idea is that even for that sinner who has sinned against you, who is your enemy, your goodness towards him, your kindness towards him, may increase his shame and may be a pathway for God to use to bring him unto full repentance. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Coals on their head, I think the idea is that you're trying to win them with kindness. Abraham Lincoln had this one, um, he has a lot of, you know, wonderful, funny, doozy quotes, but someone once asked him, why are you so lenient to your enemies? Abe Lincoln said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? He's like, well, that's, a, that's a different approach, right? My instinct is to say, there's my enemy, I should just destroy him and eliminate them, and then they're gone from the picture. Abe Lincoln, and, and maybe it's a gospel-inspired kind of uh, understanding, but his thing is, is, wait a minute, if that person's an enemy and I can win him to become my friend, then I have destroyed an enemy. But not physically, not by removing them, but by transforming them. This is what it means to triumph with good, right? Be kind to enemies. And the final statement in verse 21 is triumph with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You catch the stark contrast using the same verb. Do not be overcome, but overcome. The word overcome, it comes from a word that might be kind of familiar to you. The verbal form is nikeo, right? Um, the noun form, you might know better, is Nike, right? Or Nike, right? Nike, that's, some of you guys are wearing Nikes, right? It, it's literally the name of the goddess of victory. It means to overcome either by military or by might, but it means to be victorious. And it's saying, be careful, Christian, because you have the capacity of being overcome by evil, of evil overcoming you. What would that mean? It doesn't simply mean that evil has happened to you, that something bad has happened to you. It means that that bad happening to you takes you out of your, gum, uh, of your gospel confidence in Jesus Christ that that evil or that bad that has happened to you has removed you from faith, trust, and the joy of your own salvation. You have the capacity of being overcome by evil to the point that you have given up. You lose hope in what should never end up losing in terms of the eternal hope we have in Jesus Christ. We are eternally secure and look forward to an eternity with Him. We can't be overcome by evil. But it's not just that we are, we are bulletproof to evil, that we are not to be overcome by evil. But look at the second part. But overcome, be victorious, take victory, champion over evil with good. Now again, we keep emphasizing that this is gospel inspired because that's really what the gospel is. I'll give you one, one passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 on reconciliation. Taking two enemies and bringing them to wholeness, to fellowship, and to love. Taking an enemy and making them my friends. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Enemies, and God was the one himself, bringing enemies to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. What appeal? To be reconciled with God. That, that is the appeal that God makes, and he makes it through us, through our gospel impact. And he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ overcame our evil with his good. And he's asking his followers to act and to do the same. To overcome, to triumph over all things bad with good. Let me give you one final illustration as we finish out. Um, from, from World News, this is a story that was in April of uh, 2020 last year. Minkaye of the Wildani wild, wild wild Warriors um, he died last year. And you might go, wait, who's, who's Minkaye? Minkaye was one of the uh, Waldani warriors in Ecuador who attacked and killed Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and three other American missionaries in 1956. You can read about that in Through Gates of Splendor. Um, he died last year in his own village in Ecuador. He is somewhere between 88 and 91 years old because, you know, you can't, they don't really keep track of their years, and so he's, he's pretty old when he passed. Uh, Minkaye converted to Christianity and became known for preaching to other tribes in the region to the point that at one point their entire tribe was considered converted, and they had to go to other tribes to share the gospel because it was only their children they were sharing the gospel with at one point. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, memorialized the story in her book, Through Gates of Splendor, which later became a movie, and you could see that movie as well. What's amazing about that story is Minkaye recognizes and confesses that he was one of the men that killed these missionaries. How, how did he come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the families of these slain men, they stayed on. They continued to minister. They continued to show good in the face of evil. They literally overcame evil with good. So that the gospel seems so mind-blowing to these individuals, these murderous individuals, that they not only became Christians, they became excellent Christians. And Nate Saint, one of the men that died, his son Steve, he was almost raised by Minkaye. He considered him an adopted father, and this is what he said of him. I have known Minkaye since I was a little boy when he took me under his wing and had his sons teach me to blowgun hunt. He said he was one of the dearest friends in the world. He killed my father, but he loved me and my family. An entire tribe, an entire region of the world was transformed by the gospel. And how did that happen? It's overcoming good, I mean, overcoming evil with God's goodness, with his gospel reality and the truth of how good God is as the testimony of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we think about how the gospel is to be applied in circumstances of evil, when things are done against us, Lord, help every Christian in this room to live differently than how we are naturally, sinfully inclined to respond. To respond in a way that highlights the gospel of your grace and is a testimony of how true and transforming the gospel is. And for those that are on the fence, that are struggling, that are wondering... Lord, would you, would, you impel, would you compel them? Would your Holy Spirit do his work 
in, in igniting in them a desire to understand this gospel more, more fully, to ask questions, to dig deeper, and to find the salvation of God to be miraculously true unto salvation and life. We pray to thank you for what you have done for us in your Son and ask that we would live as men and women that represent that gospel truth in every element of our lives. How we conduct ourselves, our disposition, our very personalities, so that we would be gospel ministers and examples. In Jesus' name we pray.